Welcome to the Jay Martin Show. My name is Jay Martin. I am an investor and the CEO of Cambridge House. And my guest today is Dr. Christopher Ryan, the author of two amazing books, Civilized to Death and Sex at Dawn. He is also the host of his own podcast, Tangentially Speaking. Now, the reason that I wanted Dr. Ryan on my show today is because I spend so much time as an investor and as an entrepreneur, and honestly, just as a human, trying to understand human nature and decision-making and behavioral economics and wrapping my mind around the seemingly bottomless pit of biases that subconsciously impact our judgment, our perception of reality, and truly just the way that we move around the world. Now, the reason Dr. Ryan is so good at shining a light on this is because here's the reason that he wrote his books. He became an author because he believed that people were suffering unnecessarily because they have been misinformed on what kind of animal homo sapiens truly are. This really resonated with me because I work in finance, but you could apply this to any community of professionals. We tend to think of ourselves as being so sophisticated and evolved, but at the end of the day, aren't we just a bunch of hairless apes in suits trying to make sense of a very complex world? a world that we're not really built for, a world where our instincts are out of place. And it's hard. It's really hard to navigate this. And Dr. Ryan shines an amazing light on what this means for humans. So this was a ton of fun. We went all over the map with this conversation. We talked about the individual versus the institution. We talked about tribalism and wealth. We talked about what happens within communities when the system of organization falls apart. Before he was an author, he worked on Wall Street. So we talked about his experience in the 80s working on Wall Street and plenty of other adventures. So this was an absolute blast. This conversation was actually hosted two months ago. I'm very excited to post it to my podcast today and I really hope you enjoy it. Here is Dr. Christopher Ryan on The Jay Martin Show. Okay, guys, Jay Martin here with Cambridge House, and I'm joined by one of my favorite authors, Christopher Ryan. Chris, how are you? Good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm really excited to have you on. And if you're a regular subscriber, you know, most of what I talk about is macro finance, right? I'm an investor. I'm always looking for the smartest home for my capital, and that drives a lot of the content that I create, almost all of it. And the reason, Chris, that I wanted to chat with you is because you know, I've read uh, Sex at Dawn and Civilized to Death, two books that really impacted me for a number of reasons, but one of which is your ability to really step back from any any semblance of recency bias, almost to the fact that you, you seem immune to it. And the reason it strikes me is because, uh, well, people, but investors specifically are, are very prone to recency bias, myself mm. as well sometimes. And so, I like to look outside the box. I don't. I interview a lot of money managers and macro finance personalities and all this stuff. But it's really important for me personally to step back and, and think bigger picture often, right? And so, you know, why don't we start there? Maybe for anybody who's not familiar with your work, just explain to me why why you write the content you do and, and what you endeavor to to communicate to people. Wow, that's that's a good question. And thank you for clarifying why you wanted to have me on here. I looked at your YouTube page and I was like, I don't see how I fit into this group of people. This <laughs> is a very impressive group of people, but I don't see myself here. Uh, I'm not the, an investment guru, although I do have a very high return on my uh, 401k right now. Uh, hey. I don't know. Maybe I'm a natural. We'll see. We can talk about that afterwards. <laughs> 
Um, anyway, uh, I, I think what motivated me in both of, of the books that I've had published uh, was a sense that people are suffering unnecessarily because they have been misinformed about what sort of animal Homo sapiens is. I think if, if I had to really boil it down, that would be what it is. So I think in Sex at Dawn, you know, focused primarily on sexuality, we've misformed in the sense that we've been told that, uh, you know, women aren't very sexual creatures and, and male desire is what drives most sexual activity. That's not true. Uh, we've been told that if you really love your partner, you'll never be attracted to anyone else. That's not true. Um, you know, there's something wrong with your relationship or something wrong with you if you feel attraction to other people outside of that relationship. Uh, I think a lot of people are suffering from that um, and feeling shame and, and guilt and, you know, some sort of inadequacy uh, that's totally unnecessary. And it's all just based on the fact that you know, we've been fed uh, a lot of propaganda about what sort of creature we are and where we came from and, you know, what our evolutionary past has been. So I felt like setting the record straight, as I understood it, um, could potentially help people avoid uh, a lot of those negative feelings about themselves and, and help people manage, you know, more successful relationships. And then in Civilized to Death, I expanded that same sort of perspective to other aspects of life, uh, parenting and healthcare and diet and exercise and uh, how we die, how we confront death, to really look at what sort of animal we are, what is civilization, is it the great boon to humanity that it's been described as? And if not, uh, how does that change in perspective change the way we see these different aspects of human life? Yeah, yeah. Now, so there's a lot to unpack there, and, and thanks for that. So, you know, it resonated specifically civilized to death because you put everything in question, right? And all the, the constructs that dictate how we live our lives from the laws that we follow and we trust and we believe in. Uh, down to the borders that we're so passionately patriotic about, to the social expectations we we live by, down to a lot of our ethics and morals. Uh, but very few of us had any influence in creating any of that. And <laughs> you know, you could argue all of it is just the the dream, imagination, or mistake of somebody that came before us. And it's almost random how things have come together, right? What do you think about that? Yeah, I I think. You know, I, I didn't write about this very explicitly in Civilized to Death, but if you read between the lines, you can see that I believe that human societies are self-organizing superorganisms. And so we often confuse what's best for the institution, whether it be a corporation or you know, a, a country or civilization itself with what is best for the individuals within that institution. And so, you know, we're told that, um, you know, civilization is this amazing thing and it gives us leisure time and it gives us these food surpluses and blah, blah, blah. But then you look at the lives of individual people, 
you know, take the average human being alive today and the average human being alive 20,000 years ago and start looking very closely at things like leisure time and nutrition and general health, uh, sense of community and meaning in life, you know, we lose on almost every matrix we look at. Yeah. Uh, if you look at it, as you say, without a, what was your phrase? A, a, a recency bias? Yeah. 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 Good phrase. I wish I'd known that when I was writing the book. <laughs> it saved me some, some ink. And I, I think that that recency bias, uh, as you implied, is, is sort of a, you know, ubiquitous and natural. Uh, you know, we all think that we live in the best possible country and you're in Canada, amazing country. People in France are like, no, no, French, France is the best country. And, you know, everybody's got their bias. And we tend to do the same thing, I think, historically. So there's a sort of an unexamined assumption that this is the best possible time to be alive mm. because it's the most recent. It's always getting better. Right. And so to, to really step back and look at that and say, hold on now, is it really always getting better, even in the aggregate? Uh, is a very subversive thing. And uh, I, I tend to enjoy being subversive when I can get away with it. Yeah, yeah, okay. Now there's tons of threads I want to pull on there. So let's start with your comment about humans being self-organizing and, and probably up to a point. Would you agree? Like there's, there's a certain number and you've written about this, right? There's a certain number to which a tribe could grow, right? Mm. And 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 function relatively highly and and actually Yuval Harari does a great job of this in Sapiens discussing how humans can function based on personal relationships up to a point of about 100 150 or something like that and then you get too many degrees of separation and you're surrounded by too many people you can't trust or don't know or can't predict and you get complications and that's why we need imagination when it comes to things like governments and religion and things to believe in that we can all believe in and find alignment within right Okay, so I don't want to digress too far, but if you look at the state of, let's say the US right now, right? And we're seeing it in Canada too. There's massive, massive civil divide. And it just seems to be widening and becoming more polarized every day. And if we dial it back to my earliest, I guess, experience in this would be like 2010 when the Occupy Wall Street movement was created and there was this sort of big, you know, left right arguments and and at the time, it seemed quite extreme. But then you, you move that forward to, you know, the, the next election or the 2016 election with two very polarizing candidates um, and, and, you know, and Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump. And then even today, it's just exacerbated even further with some extreme groups and all this stuff. Do you see a way that this can reconcile or have we passed a point of no return where things just have to splinter into, into some kind of different direction that we haven't experienced yet or... What are your thoughts, Chris? Uh, well, that's that's a big one. I don't know, obviously. I don't think anyone does. We're all, you know, doing these things for the first time. But I feel like, you know, so much of these political struggles, from my perspective, which admittedly is biased, but they seem to break down into um, hunter-gatherer approach to life versus an agricultural approach to life. Um, you know, I've written about how hunter-gatherer societies are universally egalitarian. 
It's, as you say, fewer than 150 people. This is a reference to Dunbar's number, which is not a hard and fast number. It's, it's basically Robin Dunbar uh, looked at neocortex development in different primates and the size of their typical social group. And he found a correlation across primate species. And so by looking at the human neocortex, he predicted around 150 would be the maximum number of people that we could really keep track of a relationship with them, right? Mm -hmm. I'm not talking about Facebook friends or Twitter followers. I'm talking about people where you know what's going on in their lives, right? You know, you, you know, the names of their kids and, you know, that sort of organic community. So anyway, in hunter-gatherers, you have sort of organizing principles are egalitarianism, interdependence, um, sharing community, uh, mutual assistance, all these sorts of things, which tend to line up on the left side of politics, right? We take care of each other. We take care of old people. We make sure there are no children who don't have enough food or don't have childcare. More of a collectivist approach. Exactly. And, and that is where we came from, right? But then 10,000 years ago, roughly uh, beginning uh, at that point, we started settling, our ancestors started settling into static communities with political hierarchies, with economic classes, where people were accumulating resources, where men accrued much more status relative to women. So you have sort of a patriarchal machismo kind of approach to things. And that tends to line up on the right side, right? Hoarding, private property, respect for property rights and all that. Um, so yeah, these things, I feel like there's an eternal aspect to these struggles because they're these two phases of human development that are in conflict with one another, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's so strange. We, what do we tell kids in school? Uh, you know, don't bring something if you don't have enough for everyone, right? Or, you know, don't bring a cookie to school if you don't have enough cookies for everyone. Yeah, that's hunter-gatherer. That's a hunter-gatherer approach to food distribution and wealth distribution. But then we get to business school and it's all about, no, no, I, I got mine. It's not about sharing with everyone else. It's about accumulating and protecting and reinvesting. And, you know, it's all about, a very different approach to wealth management, let's mm -hmm. say, uh, or human interaction. Mm -hmm. And yeah, obviously, these are both part of our nature, and they're both part of our evolutionary past. But I do think, you know, and this is the, the sort of conundrum at the heart of, of my writing, is that I, I think these are both part of human nature, but I think one is more aligned with human nature than the other in the sense that it feels instinctively right to take care of each other. And I feel that not taking care of each other is something that has to be inculcated in us. Right. I wrote about this in Civilized to Death, how the first time I went to India and had to deal with really extreme wealth disparities where I was the millionaire, right? I was the guy who could buy a family out of debt. I'm right. the one, I had enough money to build a school in the villages, you know, like suddenly I was this really wealthy guy relative to 
the starving children who were standing next to my table in the restaurant and trying to deal with that, the pain of disparity. And it was the first time I realized that the pain affects both sides of that disparity. Mm. It's not just painful to be poor. It's also emotionally painful to be rich. It's painful to have that disparity with the people around you. Um, that was a, an important insight for me. Interesting. Interesting. Now, you know, you, you touched on a lot of things. Like I, I agree. And I, I, I love the way you describe the maybe hunter gatherer values in your book and, and you're not glorifying saying we used to be better. I mean, that's one argument that I really resonated with me saying we we've always acted out of necessity. And there was a time where collectivism was a necessity. You know, if you were successful on a hunt and you brought a deer back to your tribe and you didn't share it, well, that's fine. But guess what? The next time somebody brings a deer back to the tribe, you're probably not getting any, right? So you would share out of necessity, out of self-preservation, out of personal gain, to a degree, right? And since that doesn't exist anymore, we're, we've still got the self-preservation and personal gain, but, you know, so given that we've passed the point of no return, right, I believe the advent of the adoption of agriculture has led us down this path and right. we're not, we can't go back to that path. Right. And so what are your thoughts? Then we talk a lot about, you know, uh, I guess the wealth gap increasing, uh, life being either better or worse than it used to be. And in, in the, the biggest context of like the human journey, right? Hundreds of thousands of years, that all makes sense. But in the last sort of 10, 11,000 years since the dawn of agriculture, would you say that life has gotten better or worse? And, and can we change course in any way? What do you think? I mean, to some extent, I would question the premise of your question, uh, which is that we've left all that behind us. Uh, I do think we've passed the point of no return, uh, you know, on a societal level, on a global scale. Uh, we're not going to go back to a hunter-gatherer existence, and if we did, it would only be, you know, at at the cost of 99% of the people in, on the planet yeah. dying suddenly. But I do think that there are aspects of life where those hunter-gatherer values that you point to uh, are still operative. Um, one of the most interesting things that I came across when I was researching civilized to death was the field of disaster sociology. And I particularly recommend a book called A Paradise Built in Hell by Rebecca Solnit, uh, where she um, summarizes a lot of this work. So these are people who study human behavior in disasters, uh, ranging from war to uh, famine to, you know, floods, earthquakes, what have you. And you know, these are these are the situations in which we're told, you know, when government is not there, when, when some overarching authority is not there to make us behave, that's when we'll start acting like crazed chimpanzees and just attack each other and rape and pillage and, and all chaos will uh, ensue. And what actually happens, according to the people who study this, is that's when people start helping one another. When the government, when the structure falls away, right? Then what do we do? Well, naturally, we revert to, I say, uh, I would view our deepest human instinctive behavior, which is 
help people, take, take care, care of, of each other. Right. Yeah, and not just the people you you are related to, not just your friends, um, strangers, right? Yeah. And we see this all the time. I'm mean, just the other day, a guy jumped off a bridge to save a baby that was floating in a river. You probably saw this story, right? Yeah. Now, he didn't know that kid. He didn't know the kid's parents. He didn't know anything. He was driving home from running errands and boom, suddenly he's jumping off a river. Yeah. That's coming from very deep inside us. And, and there's a really moving uh, passage uh, where Solnit quotes, I forget the man's name, but he, he's, he was retired and uh, he was the guy who sort of started disaster sociology. He'd spent his whole life studying how people, uh, I think he started by studying bombing campaigns in World War II, uh, you know, and looking at how the, the Germans reacted to the Dresden bombing and other other you know, strategic decisions. Um, anyway, he said that at the end of all his research, he had concluded that people who live through disasters generally remember those as the best days of their lives. Interesting. Yeah, that though those were the days when they felt engaged, meaningful, doing important work, helping people. Yeah. Um, and he said, I've concluded that daily life is the real disaster. So, you know, that, so that's, you know, just to push back a little bit on the notion that uh, mm -hmm. we're no longer in a world in which those things matter, right? Those hunter gatherer values, they do matter. They very matter very much in our family dynamic, in the people, the team you work with, even though we're in a world externally in which these hierarchies are, are operative and unavoidable to some extent, I think instinctively we still respond very strongly to a sense of egalitarianism. The best way, if somebody's depressed, somebody's having a bad time, the absolute best way for them to feel better is to go help someone else, Yeah. right? That's not just kumbaya, nonsense yeah, yeah. that's repeatedly demonstrated in psychological studies and, and you see sense. that yeah with repetition uh you know when i interview some of the, the wealthiest individuals that i can get in touch with you know there's that there's a common pattern there where there's like chase 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 build 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 and then you've made it and you're unsatisfied and then there's usually a shift of philanthropy right right and and that becomes the new gospel they begin preaching right, right. Whether or not you have to go through that journey to get there, right? But it's one that we see all the time. Used to not that aspect, not necessarily, but you know, I, I do interview a lot of you know high achievers and, and very successful individuals, and and uh, very consistently when I wrap up, I'll say something like, "If you were talking to somebody in their early 30s and you wanted to give them some advice, what would you say?" And, and inevitably, it comes back as, "Slow down, enjoy life, you know, take each day as it comes." And, and I look at them and I say, but that's not what you did <laughs> across the board. Yeah. Right. And, and you yeah. can run that one all the way up. Uh, but it, it's consistent. Well, uh, but, but that's a self-selected group, right? It is. I, I imagine, I mean, I know a lot of people who are smart enough and connected enough to have made a whole lot of money and they just didn't bother. Right. Because they had that insight when they were right. in their 20s or 30s. Yeah, and they're yeah. like, yeah, I could 
I mean, personally, I, I had a weird thing. I don't know if, if this would be of interest to your audience or not, but you know, I, I finished uh, college, hitchhiked to Alaska, worked on a salmon boat, you know, adventure and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. And then I went to New York City because I wanted to live in a city and there was a woman there I was interested in. So I thought, okay, I'm going to go live in New York, drive a taxi or something. Long story short, this is the mid 80s. This is like 85, 86. Uh, I meet this guy, I get a job in a restaurant. I meet this guy. He owns three buildings in Midtown Manhattan in the Diamond District. And he decides to hire me as his personal assistant. Okay. I'm 25 years old. Suddenly, I'm living rent free in an apartment in Midtown Manhattan, a penthouse apartment. I'm making six figures. I'm like in the 80s. In the 80s, right. So yeah. it's like Reagan, yeah. you know, Wall Street blasting, uh, you know, cocaine and hookers. It's like, it's that world, you know? Yeah. And, and I was like, but my plan was to go backpack around the world. And I took this job because I thought, well, this will be interesting. I don't know anything about finance. I don't know anything about commercial real estate. Mm. The Diamond District, this is a whole world. This is a strange thing. But uh, I wasn't happy. And so I quit And uh, after two years. And he offered me a million dollars to stay. Whoa. Yeah. He said, if you stay till you're 30, I'll... I guarantee your net worth will be a million dollars. Okay. So I had this real life. I was like 26, 27, maybe at the time. Wild offer to make. Amazing. Okay. Yeah. You must have been an incredible PA. <laughs> <laughs> well, what happened was, see, here's the irony. Okay. Okay. I, I look back on this. I've thought about this a lot. I think the irony is that my value to him was very high because I didn't value money a lot. Okay. I wasn't going to steal from him. I wasn't sure. looking for an angle. I wasn't trying to use this as a way to, you know, get something else. I was just doing it because it was interesting and strange. And, you know, like, okay, a fishing boat one year, commercial real estate the next year. You know, I, I was into adventure and change. And so, ironically, my lack of, uh, real interest in money was what made him trust me and turn over his family business to me. I basically ran these uh, buildings while he went and he was an entrepreneur. He was starting other businesses and doing stuff. So he was like, look, I can teach you how to do this. You do this. That frees me up to go do this other stuff. Yeah. So it was, it was an interesting conundrum. It, you know, there I was 26, 27. And he's like, all right, you'll have a million bucks by the time you're 30. Stay here. Keep doing right. this. Right. I couldn't do it. You took off. I took off. I got a one-way ticket to New Delhi and uh, spent two years backpacking in Asia. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. What's up, everybody? Sorry for the interruption. Quick note, if you enjoy these conversations, I publish a weekly newsletter and it's free where I share my top takeaways, lessons learned, and any action steps I might be taking as a consequence in the market. Sign up at cambridgehouse.com. I publish every week and it's free. Now back to the conversation. When did you author your first book, Chris? Uh, Sex of Dawn came out in 2010. Okay. Okay. 
what occurred between between New Delhi and 2010? <laughs> <laughs> a lot. <laughs> this next journey. Yeah, a lot. <laughs> uh, you know, well, essentially what happened was uh, as an undergraduate, uh, I went to Hobart College in upstate New York and I studied literature and I love literature. I love books and writing. And, you know, that that was really my thing. And the plan was I was going to go to Oxford and do a Ph.D. and, you know, be tenured by the time I was 30 and, you know, teach it some, you know, somewhere and, and just do that life. Yeah. And I found a loophole in the student handbook that would allow me to skip my junior year and still graduate on time, thereby saving my parents a year of tuition, which was considerable, nothing like what it is now, but it was, you know, they were paying a bunch of money. Mm. And I thought, okay, I'll skip junior year, save my parents a bunch of money, and I'll hitchhike to Alaska because uh, I wanted to see a frontier. I wanted to, you know, a lot of the books that I was interested in were like, Herman Melville, Joseph Conrad, um, you know, books about adventure and, mm. you know, testing yourself and, and sort of getting into the nitty gritty of life, you know? Yeah, yeah. And so I decided I'm going to do that. So I went to, I hitchhiked to Alaska from New York, which was, you can imagine what that was like. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. And, and I met a lot of people along the way who were awesome people, like really impressive people kind. I mean, people would take me home, feed me, you know, let me sleep in the guest bed, take me, give me a ride back to the highway the next day. You know, like one woman took me out and bought me shoes because my shoes were all messed up. And she's like, you need shoes, dude. Let me buy you some shoes. Anyway, all these people who were just so kind to me and and they, you know, had good marriages and their kids loved them and they had these great dogs. And I remember this one guy who's like, yeah, I built this house myself with a couple of buddies and, you know, just like really competent people. And I was looking at them and I'm, I'm like 18, 19. Okay. I'm looking at my professor friends who, who call an electrician when it's time to change a light bulb. You know, like these, these guys were totally like yeah. incompetent for dealing with life. Yeah. They're always, you know, the relationships with their families were horrible. Like they were just angry all the time. And I thought, well, what am I doing? Like, I, what, what path do I want to be on here? Mm -hmm. So I had this big, like, uh, crisis in Alaska and I decided, okay, I'm not going to grad school. I'm not going to get married. I'm not going to have a career. I'm not going to do anything until I'm 30. I'm going to take the next 10 years and sort of make it like a national park in my life, just a wilderness area where anything can happen. So that's, that's what I decided to do. And so that's why when I went to New York and this guy offered me a job in Midtown, I was like, yeah, why not? It's an adventure. I'll learn something. Sure. So when I left, you know, I continued down. I don't want to call it a path because it wasn't, there was no destination. It was just, let's see what happens. And so I did jobs all over the world. I, I lived um, and traveled all over Asia, um, Southeast Asia, Latin America, uh, did jobs ranging from, I taught martial arts in, in Chiapas in Southern Mexico to a bunch of land reform uh, guys who later, I think were probably Zapatistas, you know, remember some mm. Comandante Marcos and that whole thing. 
they were running guns into Guatemala. I didn't know it at the time until the day I left when they explained to me why they were such good martial arts students. <laughs> um, but that, I mean, that's a whole story. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I did. I lived in Spain. I did translations. I lived in Spain probably about 15 years altogether. Uh, I worked with doctors there. Um, yeah, I did. I, did, I gave massages to fashion models, believe it or not. That was a job I actually had for a All while. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so anyway, I just like had adventures and did things and met people and, you know, sort of let uh, spontaneity guide my life for a while. That's a very profound realization to have had at 20 years old, right? 20, 20 is both old and young, depending on you know, the context, right? But yeah. today it seems very young to me because it's it's young to me. <laughs> well, you're an old kid and a young man at 20, yeah, you know? Really. Like, it's truly. a pivot point, yeah. And if you're fortunate, I mean, I feel like it's a very fortunate realization to have had at that point in your life because, um, I mean, it's a very committing decision to, you know, whether or not you went through with the next 10 years as planned, you committed to it at one point. And, and that would have changed a lot of trajectories and influenced some big decisions like, going to Manhattan, leaving Manhattan, all that stuff, right? Yeah. You know, but that's a very, very coming of age process, right? And yeah, it's, it it's just strikes me because I think the one thing that's unfortunately missing from our journeys, humans today is that coming of age ritual that yeah. I mean, you'd know better than I would. So correct me if I'm off the mark here, but it seems to have been present in almost every ancestral society, some sort of a, a coming of age ritual. Right, yeah, um, a rite yeah. of passage, you know, and it's lacking from our life today. And I think it like creates yeah. a lot of adult children walking around still wondering, who am I? I right. agree with you. Yeah, I hundred percent. And 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 you're right about the omnipresence of this sort of uh, ritual uh, in ancestral societies. In fact, I was just doing an interview with someone yesterday. We were talking about this. Um, how in most societies you have a a name as a child and then you have the ritual when the boy becomes the man or the girl becomes the woman and you're given a different name hmm. you're in a different light you're a different right person. Yeah. you're a different person right blank slate you starting over so whatever mistakes you made as a kid whatever reputation you had as a kid for being lazy or or whatever you were i mean you know geronimo the great uh, Apache warrior. Yeah. You know what his name was as a kid? No. Fat boy. <laughs> <Really>? <laughs> Nobody called him fat boy later, you know? Right. Uh, you know, so I think you're right. Um, and huh. I, I, I think I was very lucky. I, I don't, I wasn't intentionally uh, trying to do something like that, but I feel, I think instinctively I was like, I, I want to mark the end of the life of, you know, going to school and doing my homework and, you know, living at home with my parents and, yeah. And begin a different kind of life. And that, that first summer in Alaska, man, I got, so I, I was in a grocery store with this guy that I'd met traveling and we had been in the woods for like 10 days. Cause we had to hitchhike all the way up through the Yukon uh territory in canada over to uh into fairbanks and because yeah. there's this big mountain range you have to go around right? right yeah 
and we were in this grocery store and we were walking around like this sort of Soviet immigrant, you know, like, oh my God, look at all this stuff in here. This is amazing. And uh, stupidly, I took a Snickers bar and opened it up and ate it and then like put the wrapper in my pocket like I wasn't going to pay for it. And uh, that saw me. Okay. And we got arrested and actually put in prison okay. for four days wow. for, for shoplifting, right? Like yeah. uh, under a dollar's worth of stuff. But right. one thing led to another. So I was in a medium security prison in Alaska for four days. Uh, when I was 19. Right. Yeah, that was an interesting coming of age <laughs> ritual. <laughs> yeah. How, how does that get resolved when you're 19 and you're locked up for stealing a Snickers bar? In the... uh, it, it was Memorial Day weekend, which is why we were in there for four days. So like the okay. courts were all, you know, on break. Mm. Uh, and I guess this was like a Thursday afternoon. And so the court didn't come back in until Tuesday morning. And uh, what happened was, so, I mean, it's also a weird story because we had all, we had put all our clothes in washing machines in this laundromat and we were both wearing shorts with no underwear, boots with no socks and a jacket with no shirt because yeah. everything was in the washer. Yeah. And then this cop comes in, you know, he's got a problem with university students coming to Alaska for the summer you know, smart Alex, which we were. And so we, he ends up handcuffing us and taking us to this prison. And, um, cause there were no jails in Alaska. Okay. I don't know what it's like now. This was 83. And so if you got picked up for, you know, drunk driving or whatever, they would hold you in a prison. Um, so we went, we show up in this prison in our shorts, uh, two 19 year old guys. And, uh, it caused quite a commotion. The guy who who booked us was a really cool dude. And he was like, look, you guys, I'm going to set up a couple of cots in the gym. You guys are going to sleep in there. I'm not putting you in with the general population. Okay. You stick together all the time, every meal, every shower, and you'll get through this okay. And so he kind of, he mm. helped us out a lot. So it ended up being a wonderful experience actually right and definitely uh, one of those kind of turning point moments and uh, people comment about uh what was it the biggest points of struggle or crisis or your fondest memories at times right <laughs> yeah or you sure. still cherish i love that but those yeah. turning points i mean if you're lucky enough to have them uh and, and you know I, I consider myself lucky enough to have had one not knowing at the time but you know i grew up in mm. vancouver big city when i was 18 for a reason unbeknownst to me at the time, I, I left the city and moved to a town called Goldbridge that when you drove into it had a sign that said population 42. And I'm pretty sure it was, if anything, an overstatement and uh, and spent the next four years up there. And, um, you know, now that I have kids of my own, I have three young boys and that, you know, in hindsight, I was like, what? That was that point for me. It was it was complete detachment for anything. I knew all sorts of new challenges, absolute fish out of water, you know called city slicker left right and center from all the you know but it was great and i stuck around for four years because it was amazing you know it was the, mm. the best years of my life to be honest and i got a job on this ranch and all this amazing stuff happened and i remember going to bed for numerous nights in a row thinking that was the best day of my life you know it <laughs> you know for in a long period of time that was a thought it was really fortunate 
Yeah. And, and how do you recover that? You know, and, and if you're fortunate enough to have that experience, great, but can we as a society get back? I mean, probably not, right? Like how do you reinstate something like that into, into people's lives? You know? Well, I mean, I, I think it can be done. You know, there's, there's a huge hunger for that kind of experience. Uh, and so I think particularly young men seek it out in all kinds of ways. Um, from joining the military to, uh, you know, going up and planting trees in the mountains or, uh, you know, working fire crew, um, you know, a challenge, something yeah. that's going to really push you to your limits. Sure. Um, you know, I know guys who are Navy SEALs who are sweethearts, like they're the sweetest, kindest, you know, puppy dog kind of dudes, but they just really, really wanted to be pushed. They wanted to mm -hmm be part of a team, you know, they wanted to be a group. I remember reading um, Sebastian Junger's book, Tribe, uh, about, which is a great book, where he, a lot of it's about the military, and he's talking to one of these guys in Afghanistan who are, like, in, in the, you know, tip of the spear, they're getting shot at and attacked every day, and he says to this guy, like, why do you do this? Why, why do you guys, you know, sit here at this outpost getting shot at all the time risking your lives eating terrible food not sleeping i mean what an existence and the guy says uh we do it for love because we love each other and i thought man you know that's so beautiful and so tragic that we take the one of the most beautiful human impulses and we use it hmm to shape warriors, to go out and kill people they don't know, who they have nothing against. You know what I mean? It's this strange combination of such beauty and such ugliness at the same time. But, you know, I think your question is important because I think if we channel those energies constructively, they can be a huge for good in society. And if we don't, we get street gangs, we get fight club, you know, we get, you know, vandalism, we, we get yeah, acting out. Yeah. yeah, exactly. The energy is going to come out. Yeah. It's like sexuality. If you try to repress it, you're going to get a lot of ugliness. Yeah. If you let it flow, it can be beautiful. Mm -hmm. But that requires a society with a certain degree of maturity that's accepting that, hey, these things exist. Young men are going to do things. So what do we want? To, are we going to give them something good to do? Are we going to, you know, give them some sort of community building? I don't know if you've ever been to Burning Man, but I mean, yeah. I, you seem like a guy who might be a burnout. Okay. It's on my uh, bucket list, Chris, but I haven't <laughs> made the pilgrimage yet. Yeah. <laughs> well, some of these millionaires that you, you interview, you can, you know, fly down on a private jet and do the Burning Man thing. Um, but it, the thing about Burning Man is it's this incredible explosion of creativity and you're there and you're like, I cannot believe that two weeks ago, nothing was here. And now mm. there's a city, there's sculptures, there's flashing lights and movement and all this beauty. But the thing that bumps me out about Burning Man is then they take it all down, literally burn it down. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing there. And I'm like, why can't we do this every year in a, in a city? Build 
housing for people and leave it there. Why can't we construct? Why can't we take all this energy and channel it into helping people who need it? Right. Rather than just a display of wealth, like a potlatch ceremony, and then burn it. Look how rich we are. We can do this and then burn it down. It seems like a strange impulse to me. That's that's a really fascinating perspective. And having not been to Burning Man, I can only comment so much, but uh, plenty of my friends go. And actually, you're right. A lot of my guests go, you know, in, in different fashion than others. But but uh, that's a really interesting perspective. So why do you think, maybe that's a complex question to answer, but immediately, like, why is that? Why is that the case? That we can channel energy into such a productive activity and then burn it down and walk away. When there's so much greater utility for that energy and productivity. I I think a lot of it is what we started off talking about a while back, the the sort of self-organizing conundrum, the 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 difference between what's good for individuals and, and what's good for some other entity within which we're operating. So uh you know Bitcoin, we're we're using colossal amounts of energy to do nothing, right? I mean, it's nothing. It's, what is it? I, I mean, I don't claim to understand. I'm sure you have a much more sophisticated understanding than I do of these things, but like, it doesn't exist. It's not, it doesn't <clears throat> exist in a material sense at all. It's just an expenditure of energy. Mm-hmm. And that energy could be powering hospitals. That energy, you know, Something is focusing our human endeavor in ways that, from my perspective, seem to be colossally wasteful Mm -hmm. at best and colossally destructive at worst. So I, I can't claim to understand why that's happening, but it certainly seems that these entities have interests that don't align with our interests. You know, that I mean, I understand in a sort of macroeconomic sense why Exxon is drilling wells offshore or why Chevron is dumping their oil into the rivers in Ecuador. Mm-hmm. It makes sense. Externalize your expense and maximize profit. And, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and when I say things like this, often people say to me, yeah, but good people work at these companies, right? Good people work at Chevron, even though, yeah, they make mistakes and they've destroyed ecosystems and blah, blah, blah. And I say, yeah, but the thing is, those good, if, if the CEO of Chevron, you know, went on an ayahuasca journey with his son and, and had an epiphany and came to work on Monday and said, We've got to stop destroying the Amazon. This is crazy. What would happen? They would stop. He'd be fired. Yeah. Right. And if the board of directors happened to agree with him somehow, they'd be fired. Sure. So it's people don't run companies. Companies run people. And there's something about that that's mm-hmm. some kind of black magic that I can't claim to understand. But you can see it when the activities of these institutions are clearly against the interests of human beings right now you know why is that do you think it's because you know at our core we fear for our own safety and stability 
and it's and we live in a world that incentivizes short-term results and so you know we act within our best interest because well i mean here's the thought like you know we don't have that collectivist approach anymore and so if something terrible were to happen to me i would love to say that my neighbors would step up and take care of my wife and kids but they wouldn't you know they would you know that's why i have an insurance policy i have to have an insurance policy because i can't rely on my community right and that's unfortunate but it's it is what it is well, it is anyways, you know, and, uh, and I, yeah, I, I just found myself digging into that a little bit. Like, you know, we're, are we just doing our best given the reality we're surrounded by, or is there more to it than that? What do you think? Well, your example is interesting. Insurance is so interesting because I think it's a really good, it offers a good insight into how everything that can possibly be monetized is being monetized right yeah. i mean even i'm quite a bit older than you but i can re, you know i can see in my life things that used to be free you know the interests of business invade like an incoming tide and you know i can remember the first time i saw water being sold in a store okay what a weird concept, right? They're bringing water from France. This was the, the 80s. I was in New York in the Diamond District and there's this Perrier. I was like, who would drink water from France? Like, what is the sense of that? Like, New York yeah, City yeah. has the best water in America. Like, right. you know, it's fantastic. Why would I pay money to drink? And now it's everywhere, right? Yeah. Um, and I think about these commercials for insurance, uh, State Farm. They're Forever, they've had the same slogan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there, right? That's fascinating. Yeah. yeah, like a good neighbor. But because State Farm is there, your neighbor is no longer responsible to help you. That that mutual cooperation is out the window. Yeah, right. Because you don't know your neighbor because you live in a big city mm -hmm. and. It, you know, everything's fragmented and isolated. The more people live alone right now than have ever lived alone in the history of our species. You know, obviously absolute numbers, but also in terms of percentage. Yeah. This is a huge tragedy. What do we do to our worst criminals? Yeah. Solitary confinement. Isolation. Yeah. 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 It's so we're again i mean i know i'm it's a it's a vague concept and i keep returning to it but i i feel like we are you know think about um you know termites that organize and create a termite mound right these incredibly elaborate constructions and nobody there's no architect termite Right. There's nobody saying, okay, now we're going to build this chamber over here and we're going to get the roof, but first you have to do this. There's the, it just happens. Mm -hmm. And I feel like something like that happens with human beings. When you get a certain number of human beings together, and maybe it relates to your opening question about Dunbar's number and, you know, not being able to keep track of people on a personal level. Uh, when we get into these abstractions, we sort of self-organize into entities that then take over and the interests of those entities don't align with our interests in terms of, 
you know, sending children into coal mines, uh, you know, uh, working people to death and slavery. And, you know, the list goes on and on and on. Makes sense from a business perspective, but it doesn't make sense from a human perspective. And then you get to a global level where we're actually destroying the planet we live on, which is, you know, the greatest fallacy any living thing can possibly commit. Yeah. But it's good business. So I can't claim to understand it, but it, but I think it's important to see that. And I think it's very important for your audience, particularly because I think a, my father was an executive at big companies. Um, and we used to talk about this stuff all the time. And, and it really bothered him because he was surrounded by good people who were trying to do good things. But when he stepped back and looked at what the company was doing, often it made him very sad. Yeah. Yeah. That's, it's fascinating. And, uh, and you don't know, I don't really know what to do with that, you know, because I, I think me either. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I find it hard to believe that anybody could disagree with that, that we are, we are improving our life at the cost of destroying our planet at a large scale. I mean, that's kind of the human story since the dawn of agriculture, right? We're more ants eating less of the apple, right? Every day, right? Yeah. And, uh, and that's only going to speed up because more ants and less apple every day. What you do with that, I don't know. But, you know, one of the first comments you made when we got on this call was, you know, we've never done this before, <laughs> you know? And I just thought, yeah, what a great setup. Look, Chris, I, I told you I'd keep you for around half an hour. It's been close to an hour. I really enjoyed chatting with you. And um, I'm, I'm glad that you made the time to do this. I appreciate it. You know, it's been fun because I, I think I read uh, A Sex at Dawn, like, I don't know, four or five years ago, Civilized to Death, as soon as it came out. And um, and uh, thoroughly enjoyed both books. Uh, they, they provided, a, you know what they go well with if I were to pair books together? <laughs> I, I found they, they paired very well with Sapiens. <laughs> And then maybe like anti-fragile in the sense that like mm. you really step back from the, the, just the constructs, right. And the, yeah. the, this is how it is because it's, this is how it is, you know, and, and yeah. independent, independent yeah. thought, like personal Thank sovereignty and sovereign mindset. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate that. I, I enjoy both of those books a lot. Anti-fragile. I think about all the time. Uh, just that, that idea that, uh, you know, a brick, is not the opposite of a champagne glass and that one breaks easily and one doesn't break. The opposite right. of fragility is something that gets stronger when it's traumatized. And it's such yeah. an interesting concept. Absolutely. It can be applied to so many different things. Have you ever read a book called Finite and Infinite Games? No. Highly right. recommended. I, I think you, you might find it one of those books that sticks in your head for the rest of your life. It's, it's similar to anti-fragile in the sense that it's just this one, one simple idea. And then he gives a bunch of examples to help you sort of grasp it. Okay. Um, and, and once you have it, you'll start seeing it everywhere. It's, it's a really interesting, uh, it's very short too. You can read it, you know, okay. in an hour. It's James What's Cars. Next? Sorry, who's the other? Cars, C-A-R-S-E. James Cars. Okay. Now what's next for you? Is there another book in the works? I don't know. 
uh, honestly. I, I've got uh, a few ideas that have been percolating for a while, um, but I really enjoy doing my podcast uh, in a in a very immediate sense, and uh, I don't really enjoy writing books. You know, like someone said, I enjoy having written. You know, and. So I really enjoy the opportunities to meet people like you that these books have, have brought me. Um, but now my podcast is big enough that I can meet a lot of people just doing the podcast. So, uh, you know, that's just so gratifying. And, you know, it, it, it's sort of a, a nice circle, too, because the, the podcast is it's called Tangentially Speaking, and I go into it. Uh, with very little research. It's basically like you and I sat down next to each other on a bus and we both feel like talking and it's, that's it. So you might be, you know, I'll, I'll have people on who are famous for this or that, but we don't necessarily talk about the thing they're famous for. We talk about whatever comes up. I just like to let the conversation flow organically. Yeah. Now, was there a learning curve there? I got to ask, like, did you start when you started your podcast? Did you start with that approach or did that approach expose itself to you through the process? No, I started with it. And, uh, and I think it's because uh, I, of that hitchhiking I did when I was young. Okay. That I really liked the experience of getting into a car with no idea who you're about to spend time with. Yeah. And beginning with a sense of gratitude, right? Because this person stopped and picked you up. They're taking a risk, picking up a, you know, a yeah. six foot two man with a backpack and, you know, who knows. Um, so starting out with like, thank you, uh, wanting to like this person, wanting to be interested in this person and having the experience of, you know, everybody's interesting everybody is if they feel safe enough and and nurtured by your curiosity you're gonna get something really interesting uh with this person and i just love doing that and so when i started the podcast i called it tangentially speaking because uh, i knew i wasn't going to interview people i was going to you know i think about there's a line i read i forget who said who said this but they said a great teacher does not convey information. A great teacher creates an environment in which learning can happen. Love it, yeah. Yeah, and so that's kind of like what I want to do with guests is just create an environment in which they feel comfortable telling their story or, you know, showing something of themselves. Um, and I just, I love that. I love doing that. And, you know, so some of the guests are famous. I've had Joe Rogan on. I've had, you know, famous authors. And um, and then some of them are, you know, sex workers. Or there's a guy who's uh, fascinated by rattlesnakes. And all he does is he lives out in the desert and studies rattlesnakes. That's all he cares about. He's not a professor anywhere. He's not publishing. He's just with his snakes all the time. Um you know, or, or people who, you know, sail across the ocean alone or, or, you know, just some guy I, I meet uh, in a gas station, like whatever. I just mm -hmm. love uh, connecting with people that way. So I don't know. I might write more books, um, but honestly, 
the, the main reason I would write books at this point is money. And, you know, as we've already established, like, I'm not real motivated by money. So yeah, uh, I might not get to it. I don't know. We'll huh. see. I love the podcast. I mean, and it's such an interesting way that you describe it, but people are infinitely interesting, aren't they? Yeah. And, and yeah. you know, having a platform like this is uh, such a fortunate experience because you just get to dive into the brains of so many people. And, um, yeah, you know, I asked that question about your learning curve and how you structure your conversations, because I, I, I did go through a learning curve there. When I started doing this, I was very prepared and I had my whiteboards were just like every word I planned on saying, you know, every question, every concept and all this stuff. And then I just found that the conversations became so much richer uh, mm. in those instances where I didn't have time to prepare, but, yeah. you know, and I just, let's just go, you know? Yeah. And, and uh, that's it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and you just end up getting to a different level of depth. Hence, you know, when I signed down with you today, I said, "Let's hit record before we even start talking because I don't <laughs> miss anything." <laughs> well, you're—I mean, you're a natural too, man, because you have a very friendly face and a and a <laughs> you know a sincere smile, and I think that makes people people feel safe uh, speaking with you. I I certainly said a lot of things I wasn't planning to say today, so awesome. That's a testament to you. Appreciate that, man. I do. Yeah. Well, look, thanks again for coming on. It was great having you on the show, Chris. Uh, once again, so much respect for your work. And uh, ten, I, I can't, you know, for the life of me, I've never been able to say the word tangentially. Ten I've never been able to. This isn't the first time. This come up. <laughs> I, and you're not the first person. It, it's funny. I, I A lot of people call it tangentially speaking. And I was like, yeah, okay, close enough. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's true. It, I it, it's too late to change the name now, but it, yeah. it is problematic. Yeah, but just think it's about tangents, right? We we go off on tangents, and that's totally cool. I love it. But you can find it iTunes, Spotify, you're everywhere where a podcast is. Everywhere. Okay. Thanks yeah. again, man. I appreciate it. Thank you, Jay. If you enjoy my content, do me a favor: follow or subscribe to this podcast. Drop me a rating and a review and share this with a friend. All of these things allow me to get bigger and better guests on the show. Now you can catch me all over social media at jmartinbc. Thanks for tuning in.